This program features interviews with people incarcerated or family members of those who are incarcerated with the Missouri Department of Corrections. Their names have been edited out for their protection. Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. This week, we are starting a special monthly series looking at the Missouri Department of Corrections and their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Our programs will feature testimonies from those directly impacted, people who are incarcerated, and their families. Joining me today are Maria Miller, founder of Our Lives Matter and a leader with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing, and Kingya, the host of Kingya Speaks. He also is an organizer with Expo and a human rights activist and a motivational speaker. And finally, Elise Max, of, she is the state director for Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Before we hear the testimonies, um, tell us how these uh, interviews came about. Uh, Maria, you were the one in contact with these individual, with a couple of these individuals. Um, how did you hear from them initially? Hi, thanks for having us, Kevin. Um, this started out in the beginning of the pandemic. I just, I put the flyer out. Um, now, one of the per people I had been advocating for for about a year, it was a lot of retaliation and things like that going on with him. So we had a move, so I had been in contact with him. The rest were families whose sons had been tested positive for COVID. And another lady just was getting, um, her son had not tested positive for COVID. She just had a lot of issues with the Department of Corrections. So some kind of way they came um, in sight with the flyers and they reached out to the organization for help. And I joined, I began, you know, we got the letters, sent the letters to the Department of Corrections on the issues that were going on in the inside the walls. Okay, great. So let's go ahead and listen to our first um, testimonial here. Um, he is currently held at Bon Terre, Missouri at the facility there. So we'll take a listen to his testimony. My experience uh, dealing with COVID-19 in prison, um, it's been tumultuous. You know, uh, I'm at a point where every day, you know, I'm wondering, will I really make it home, you know, to be with my family? You know, since um, our business was taken away back in like, March. This has been a roller coaster ride. The guards don't necessarily take it serious. They openly admit it. They mimic the words of the president. They say this is a hoax. This is something that came from China. They don't really want to wear the mask. They don't have on gloves. They damn sure don't wash their hands. You know, we've been isolated from the community. So we know where the virus is coming from. We know that the laws is bringing it into the institution. And so as a consequence, they decided to do massive testing. And so many people have tested positive for the coronavirus. These people are not equipped. They're not prepared. This is, this is, this is not something that the boss or administration or staff, this is not something that's, that's in their warehouse to be able to manage. 
we don't have no top health officials, some some liaison, some designated person who's promoting what are the health values, what are the strategic preparations or precautions that we need to be taking. Yet still days and months have went past, we're still not seeing our families. Most of our institution is under quarantine. We have guys around here who are literally or afraid. Some of these guys are, are, are actually saying that they are going through symptoms such as like they're having like exasperated uh, headaches, chills and uh, sweats and feeling weak and stuff like that. But, but a lot of these guys really don't want to say nothing because they feel like the, 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 the prison in itself don't have their best interest at heart. And so what do they do? They feel more safe being around the masses because we will alert somebody if someone is really in distress. So they are afraid of being isolated and put somewhere because not only is there no cure, there is no round-the-clock attention. You know, we're left in a position to where it's like no one literally cares, especially the people who are in charge. I just want the community to understand that there needs to be a coming together. There needs to be a groundswell from the communities putting pressure on Democrats, Republicans, whoever the leadership is. Because at the end of the day, we are human beings. We wasn't sentenced to, to, to die in prison because of COVID. Okay, that was uh, from the Eastern Reception Diagnostics and Correction Center in Bonterre, Missouri. So I was talking about how uh, the facility is not taking things seriously when it comes to the COVID virus. Elise, you uh, earlier this year were at that facility. Can you tell us about what you saw in regards to the, the, the facility's um, handling of, of the infection? Yeah, sure. Um, on May on May nineteenth, Missouri was the first state to move forward with an execution during the pandemic. Um, they executed Walter Arkey Barton and didn't have much concern about safety, about COVID, about following CDC guidelines. We know that the CDC recommends that you do not transfer prisoners except for medical reasons. And Walter Barton was brought from Potosi to Bonterre for the execution. So um, I don't know that murder or an execution is a medical reason, but there was certainly some disregard for that in transferring him. Um, so there had been no executions in the nation since um, a couple months before Missouri went ahead with this one. And the, there were stays in Texas, in Ohio, in Tennessee because of COVID, because they knew that, you know, there was a risk of transferring COVID during the execution. Um, with Walter Barton, we know that they took temperatures, they wore uh, masks at the time of the execution, but the attorneys had been there all day and COs were not wearing masks and staff were not wearing masks. Only the attorneys for Walter Barton were wearing masks. About an hour before the execution, they bring in all of the witnesses. 
So there were six state witnesses that, that included DOC workers as well as media witnesses. They were wearing masks, but they were together in a 300-foot room waiting for the execution to start. In addition, while they were spending that hour waiting, um, DOC staff, including Ann Precincts, had come in and out of that witness room without masks on. So we know they were going back and forth between the witnesses and the um, uh, inmates, as well as the person they were going to execute without masks, without taking those types of precautions. That was on May 19th. Um, and then they did not begin testing inside ERDCC. I believe that uh, the first testing happened about a month afterwards. June 16th was the first testing. And there were over 30 positive cases at that time from inmates and staff. Obviously, we wouldn't be able to make a direct correlation, but as um, we heard in the recording, we know it had to have been brought in from the outside. We traveled to ERDCC um, to protest outside of the facility, and the COs were not wearing masks. They were coming close and speaking with us. We were quite uncomfortable. We sat in the car with our masks on and just exited right at the time of the execution. So um, from our understanding, that was a, a, a point where people were in an enclosed space. It was unnecessary to move forward with this during a pandemic. We did not need to, to do that. And now there's over 300 cases in ERDCC. And it was great to hear from someone inside how that is impacting them it's not just 300 people, it's 300 individuals that are in there suffering now. And while we are not 100% sure it came from the act of executing Walter Barton, it just shows how little care they give to the fact that there is a pandemic and the lives of the people living inside of the facilities of the Department of Corrections in Missouri. And now Maria and Kenya, uh, what is your reaction to what you heard? Um, there, there seemed to be a, a lot of um, apprehension and mistrust in his story about uh, the ability of the, the leadership of the facility to, to handle this. That's, that's one of the reasons, <clears throat> back to your question when you asked like, you know, how do the recordings, or how did this get started? But this is the reason for the recordings. I could, if I would have told that very same story, it would have been a whole different effect. So I wanted this to be real. I wanted the people to hear not just what I write the NDOC about, not just what I complain about. I wanted them to hear these stories. But most of the people in the prisons, and I'm sure Kenya can really get into that because he's been there, they, they don't trust the workers. They don't trust the Department of Corrections because they have failed them. One of the things that really made me get adamant about this is when you have someone calling you your line crying saying how their husband has COVID and all they can hear is coughing and heavy breathing and no medical attention that's disturbing to me and just to go with what Elise said one of the things that really was disturbing to me because as of May 19th Missouri was the only state in the nation to do an execution during the pandemic. Is that still true? I'm not sure, but I do know as of May 19th, no other state had done an execution. That says a lot about our director, you all. You know, I have battled with injustice, poverty, and abuse throughout my life. Being a victim of a broken family structure, I'm ready to help 
people avoid these pitfalls. And, you know, when I'm talking about some of these issues, I encourage people to, to find their voice. We need to continue having these hard conversations about race, about human rights, about relationships, injustice, and mental health. Being a victim of someone who was wrongfully convicted, charged as an adult, as, as a juvenile at 15 years of age, I can relate to these brothers being incarcerated. I can relate to the sisters being incarcerated and that are being, uh, their human rights are being violated every single day. Uh, their trust levels for the COs uh, have greatly diminished. The oppression, the suppression, the 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 um the the abuse that they endure every single day is horrific and when i hear the recordings it takes me back to the times that i was there growing up in prison at age 14 to 24 the things that i experienced the things that i know that they are experiencing is is horrible and we have to continue to speak out against these injustices and to continue to give them a voice and, and let them know that we stand in solidarity and support of the struggle of what they are experiencing and what they are going through. And so when I was invited to become a member on Expo, um, I want to thank Tracy. I want to thank you, Maria, and everyone else that's involved with Expo, including MCU and this great partnership that we have right now. So I want to thank you again, Kevin, also, and uh, Elise for joining us, because this is very important to our culture and our society, and our society needs to be made aware of what's going on inside the walls, behind the prison walls, because had it not been for some of these testimonies and for people like myself that have actually gone through um, the hardships, the trials and knows what it's like living on the inside, literally, um, we have a voice and to collectively, we can get our stories out. Stories like um, Maria's that have gone untold, stories like mine that have gone untold, and countless other brothers and sisters throughout the state of Missouri, Illinois, and all 50 states across America. We have to continue being vigilant and staying strong, speaking truth to power and getting this information out. To echo kind of what you were talking about, the, our next interview, he has a very similar story to yours. And he is at the Southeast Correctional Center in Charleston, Missouri. Hello, taxpayers. At the tender age of 17, I was illegally and unjustifiably questioned for homicide detectives, which subsequently led to me being tried for charges I was not guilty of. Of course, the court system failed me and even though they have appeal processes, these appeal processes are rubber stamped, which means that they just go along with whatever said in trial by the trial judge. And they also feel recently there have been a lot of things going on in DLC that we all are very, very displeased about. And through this organization here, we have an opportunity to speak some of these displeasures. The one I choose to speak about at this moment is the COVID-19. In July of this year, the DOC decided to do a statewide COVID test for everyone inside the DOC, starting at the institution I'm at, which is the Southeast Correctional Center. I refused to take this test. I didn't want them just injecting or me putting anything inside of my system and not knowing what it is. So by me refusing to take this test, I was handcuffed. I was paraded around. The institution, I'm in six houses. The quarantine house is in five houses. All they had to do was take me to the gate 
and walked into five houses. Instead, they took me around the whole institution to set example for everyone if they refused to take these tests. Mind you, this was the first housing unit to take tests. Once entering five house, you have to wear a personal uh, protective equipment, and this is mandatory. I was allowed to go inside of these wings without any mask or any form of protection. They had uh, every CO in there with, with mask on, gloves on, even plastic masks on top of their mask to protect them. However, when they brought me in there, I wasn't even allowed a mask. And I left the housing unit, which is population, where my mask was. They intentionally left that behind. I sat in that cell for 10 hours in my socks, T-shirt, and pants with no mask on. Now, the problem is each housing unit is... Um, separated by four wings. So each of these four wings share a ventilation system. Inside this ventilation system, I have an intake and an outtake vent. Now, everybody inside of this wing, well, at least majority of them, tested positive for this virus, and they're inside their cells. So if they're coughing, and we know it's a fact now that this virus was airborne, if this ventilation system is also connected to each and every uh, cell inside this housing unit, that means that I am now jeopardized because it's a possibility I can catch this through the ventilation system. Retaliation is very real in the DOC. This is a this is a, a, a machine to where someone is related to someone. So if 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 a CO was to write someone up, the response to that is it's a possibility you're gonna you're gonna be seen by their aunt, their uncle, their wife, their husband, their cousin, their child. You know, it's a strong possibility. So that 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 form of of, of favoritism is there. Like it is it, very real there. And this is one of the only outlets our lives matter that allow these things to be heard and seek things to be done. I have spent the last two decades in change and some change inside these institutions. Falsely accused of crimes. I'm not afraid of the DLC. They've taken my twenties, my thirties, and they want to take more from me. They can't take any more from you. I have my pride. I am the man that I am. You know, these people didn't raise me. They just separated me from a lot of distractions. So, to me, I feel like I beat the system. I grew up in this place, but not of this place. They did not make a monster. What they did was they had me acknowledge the God within me. So, Ms. Miller, I'm not afraid. They don't scare me. What can they do to me? What are your reactions to what you've heard from, from his testimony? It sounds like there were some precautions in place, um, but it's uneven. and they're also using um, sort of the enforcement of, of COVID policies as, as humiliation and punishment. So what is your reaction to what you hear from his story? Now, the thing with that story, what I, I'm, I'm fair, um, and I don't mind going after who needs to be going after. I will say this, Southeast, out of all the prisons that I've dealt with, that has been the, the one with the least outbreak. Now, if you notice when you hear him say they had plastic masks on top of their masks, I would say Southeast was smart enough to protect themselves so that they, and that protecting themselves would not spread that until the people incarcerated. Now, I personally had an encounter with the warden when he first got there. And what I will say about their warden, out of all the wardens that I've dealt with, and I told him that, now, he's no longer one. He got promoted to a deputy one. But I told him in the beginning, I, I, you know, I require respect and I, I like truth. 
And that man was truthful. He was the most professional, respectful wardens I've ever met in my time of doing advocacy. So I'm going to say the number with that, that pandemic, I'm sorry, that revolves around what them protecting themselves and protecting their facility. Now, when they did not give him his things and paraded him around, I filed a complaint the very next morning. Within hours, he had everything he needed. So they were prompt. Yeah, they do what they want to do to people. Um, but to be fair, that's that that they did they handled the policy and procedure was way out of whack, but or the protocol, but the way they handled it, I believe it was the best handle someone handling things the best way that I've seen so far. He did he was hesitant to to be tested. And as a result of that refusal to be tested, he's then humiliated in front of the rest of the population. And it seems like this is a common occurrence of, uh, if this wasn't direct retaliation, it was a, a little bit of a warning shot to others. And and talk about how that manip- manipulation happens within within the population like that. And what I, I mean, Kenya can go further into that because like I said, I'm not in the facility, but just based on my experience, Prison is not for people that are easily intimidated because what they do is they break your pride. They, they try to rip that away from you so they can control you. So when they do things like they did for the people that are not mentally strong, emotionally strong, yes, they will, they will make them fearful. So yes, I have to answer to you because now I'm afraid that you're going to do this to me or you're going to take me down here and beat me up or you're going to do different things. But Kenya, I'm pretty sure we'll have a deeper input on that. After listening to that testimony, it reminded me of what my life was like in prison, how there is a distrust how there is the humiliation um, uh, against prisoners by officers, how they go um, beyond their call of duty to um, to demoralize us, to criminalize us, to make us feel inferior, to, um, to take our, our rights away from us, to tamper with our mail, to um, retaliate against us if we are getting uh, help from advocacy um, uh, organizations in the world. Uh, so it, it happens uh, on more occasions than, than not. And, you know, when we're talking about this COVID piece, um, by September 1st, at least 115,000 106 people in prison had tested positive for the illness, a 7% increase from the week before. New cases, as we know, are continuously arising from this pandemic. There's been jumps in Florida, California, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, as well as outbreaks in Arkansas, Hawaii, and, and Oklahoma. So we know that cases are continuing to peak, whether it's COVID or some other, I don't know what the pandemic is, but we know that there is a pandemic and, and it's happening, right? And there is no protection from those brothers and sisters that are incarcerated. We know that there has been late peaks in April with such states as Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, and Texas. Um, they began mass testings of prisoners in those states. 
And, uh, you know, those initiatives suggested that the coronavirus had been circulating among people without symptoms, uh, much greater numbers than previously even ever known. So the cases so far, there's 115,106 cases of coronaviruses reported among prisoners and 87,115 prisoners have recovered. So when we talk about the deaths, there has been allegedly 973 total deaths. All right. So I just wanted to share that information with you guys because it is important and imperative that we continue to look on what's going on behind the walls, what's going on with these brothers and sisters that are incarcerated, why are their voices not being heard, why are their voices continuously being suppressed, why is there not any adequate protection against any form of pandemic, whether it's coronavirus or whatever that pandemic is, why is it that the guards are not taking it seriously and as we have already alluded to, the, te the, the testimonies of our um, prisoners today, the guards are not taking anything seriously. They're not taking it any light, anything lightly. Maria has testified. She has provided uh, numerous recordings of those brothers that have been incarcerated, that are currently incarcerated. Elise joins us and talks about how she witnessed, um, stood outside to witness the the environment of the prison guards uh, at, while they were executing um, executing the prisoner, how there was no PPE, personal protection equipment. So it's a joke to them because again, as prisoners, we have no rights. As inmates, we have no rights. We are demoralized. There is no rehabilitation. The uh, prison, the penal institution does not teach rehabilitation, does not provide rehabilitation. They provide three meals and a cot. That's it. That's all they provide. That's all they focus on. As long as you got three meals and a cot, a bed to sleep in, that's all they're required to give you. That's it. Nothing, nothing more, nothing less. We're going to move outside of uh, the, the walls a little bit to the families that are impacted. Um, also, we're going to, our first, uh, our next interview is going to be from whose husband um, is being held at the Missouri Eastern Correctional Center in Pacific, Missouri. I have a husband who's incarcerated at Pacific Prison, and I am complaining about issues and mistreatment and COVID issues at uh, the facility he's in. Recently, he has been tested positive for COVID, and my argument is, how is COVID entering the prisons if the inmates cannot go anywhere? Like, the staff is supposed to be held accountable for all COVID reasons entering the prison. And the mistreatment that's going on with my husband right now is unfair and unhumanly because he's in a hole right now in segregation, and he's been mistreated. They had him in handcuffs pushed him in his cell, made him fall and break and fractured his jaw, and he has to go to the house to the Tuesday or Wednesday to get his jaw wired up, and he will have to have his mouth wired up for three to four weeks. And he's supposed to be on liquid diet, and they're not feeding him liquid diet. He hasn't eaten in three to four days now, and it, I'm really frustrated and mad about this whole thing. 
it's a lot going on in the prison system that they're hiding. And when I'm addressing issues, they only refer me to what's online. I already know what's online. You're, you're, I don't know what you're doing in there that my husband and other inmates are going through. So that is my another issue. They are mistreating the inmates like they're not human. Okay, I reached out for help with my husband for the COVID issues. But now that we're sending legal uh, help to him, they're refusing to give him legal mail while he's in the hole. Like, I need paperwork from him to move forward. And they, they refusing his mail. They put him in the wrong wing. So he had a, a incident, an altercation where he had to go in the hole for 20 days. It's going on 20 days now. My biggest fear and concern with this COVID stuff was going on was making sure my husband make it home to me and my daughter safely and healthy. That was my number one fear because this COVID is serious. And I want to make sure that the COVID doesn't take my husband away from me and his daughter, our daughter we have together. That was my biggest uh, concern. And I want the justice system to see that all the inmates are still human beings. And they don't have to mistreat the inmates because they're having a bad day or something is not going right in their own lives. What are your thoughts here? The, again, we're, uh, the, the uh, virus seems to be coming in through staff that is not taking things seriously and also is not getting um, timely medical attention. That was the person that contacted me. She found my information on Real STL News, but she was crying. And this is when her husband had tested positive. So after I started sending, um, inquiring about the treatment of him testing positive is when this altercation. Now, amazingly, they, they never responded to my letters or my contact. But amazingly, I'm going to say within that week, now he tested positive twice, allegedly. Uh, after I sent that letter, the next week, he did not test positive. Now he's an ad seg with a fractured jaw. Now what's alarming to this, <clears throat> I send consent forms out to all of my clients. I have to do that to keep, to be able to, to communicate if I decide to go to the senators or legislative. They denied him his mail. They did not give him the consent form and he ends up an ad seg with a fractured jaw. That really sticks out to me, Kevin. That is inhumane, okay? To this day, that facility has not reached back out to me and I actually followed up several times on the care and well-being. And what really sticks out to me did that um, interview with me Sunday. She said that he would be sent out to the hospital on Tuesday. This happened last week. So you allow him to stay in prison with a fractured jaw for over a week with no proper medical treatment and not giving him his liquid diet? That's horrible. 
you know, it, this is something that happens often with the male tamperings throughout prisons. I did my time in Illinois, Stateville, Pontiac, Menard, Mount Sterling, Western Illinois Correctional Center. Um, I served all my time there, all right? And I saw far too often how the prison guards retaliate against you. If you get into any type of altercation, any disagreement with any officer there, they will all treat you like you are the low man on the totem pole for lack of better terminology. I think y'all know what I'm trying to say. And so when you get on that list, you get no mail. They tamper with your mail deliberately. They censor your mail, incoming, outcome, outgoing. They censor your mail. They restrict your visitations. They will cut your visitations off from your family and tell them that you're on lockdown. So what they're talking about in that testimony, it happens. It happens far too often. And the society won't ever know that it's going on. It's only a select few people that will know what's going on. And coincidentally, it's those that are in prison. It's their family members. And that's about the extent that it goes. You might have a few people that are advocating for the rights and justice, like our lives, our lives matter. Like Maria with our lives matter, right? So she is an advocate for our, our prisoners, right? Uh, since I have been out in October 31st, 2003, I have continuously advocated for prisoners. Starting a, uh, a prison ministry, DJB, Divine Jerusalem Brotherhood Prison Ministry, I've been doing that since 2003, reaching out, getting information as to what's going on. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing, different day, different guard, different prisoner. And it's horrible when you have young prisoners coming to these institutions with 300 years, right? That's a life sentence. That's a 20 year old coming to prison with a 300 year sentence, no eligibility of parole. It's horrible when you, when you experience these things, when you, when you hear stories like this, when you uh, hear stories about the pandemic and how there's no help for these prisoners and how they are retaliated against and sent into isolation, segregation, the whole, for those of us that don't know what that is, it's, it's isolation away from the general population as an act of retaliation. So again, I wanna thank Our Lives Matter Expo MCU for allowing us to uh, share this information on your platforms and for the collaborative effort that we are now engaging in to continue speaking up and speaking out against injustices inside of the prisons. As we talk about um, uh, the COVID or or pandemics that are affecting prisoners uh, throughout the USA. Uh, And more specifically with our partnership um, and talking about the Missouri Department of Corrections. And our next interview is with whose son is incarcerated at the Moberly Correctional Center in Moberly, Missouri. She has a similar story. My son is currently in Moberly Correctional Center in Moberly, Missouri. There have been no positive cases for inmates there. I think there was a couple of staff that had it a while back. 
most of my problem is just no, there is absolutely no transparency with anything. He has currently been in segregation since July 20th, and they're wanting to keep him for 30 more days, and I can't get any answers from them, and I have not been able to touch base with him to ask him what's going on with that. Um, but I know a lot of the other facilities are having trouble with having a virus. And there's also been seven staff in the last couple of weeks that have actually been assaulted in three different prisons. I think there's just a lot of stress on the inmate part because they're worried about having having that in the system. He has put in several IRs for um, staff just harassing him. Um, a couple months ago, he was in the restroom, and one of the guards said that he was disobeying orders, and I had to call the institution and fight with them about having them drop it because – I mean, he was in the restroom, so I guess they ended up, they investigated it on film and everything, and they ended up dropping that one. And they now they're, they keep stating that the reason he's in there now is because they think it's a mental issue, which I don't think it is. So I think it, they're just retaliating because of his IRRs complaining about staff. He doesn't like being in there. I mean, who does? I mean, he's been in there like what? about 46, 47 days now, that, that's too long. I mean, and, and now they're talking about they want to keep him in there another 30 days. He told me that they're trying to get a court order to, for him to take medication. I know a lot, of, a lot of families really concerned about the COVID thing. A lot of the families are saying that, that they don't feel, and I don't feel that they're really doing anything to try to stop it. Because none of them are wearing masks. And my question is, the, the few that are having visits, um, why are they f making staff wear masks for that, but not the rest of the time, the rest of the week? When I first found out that they weren't wearing masks, I, I mean, I was blowing up phones. I, I was calling, I was calling mobily, plus I was calling out here at Jeff City, and I also called um, the governor several times over it. So, and it seems funny that about the time that I'm doing this, that they stick him in segregation. It's the staff that's bringing it in because it's not us because they suspended visits way back on March 12th. So it's not us that's bringing it in. Number one, they need to let him out of segregation. Really, that's my main thing. And, and they need to do better about this virus. They I think masks should be a requirement for them because they're in and out and they're around these inmates within close quarters every day. We're hearing familiar stories here uh, with staff that, that doesn't seem to uh, take the virus seriously and then also retaliation. This is pretty much to show you that staff were allowed to do whatever they want to do when they do it and how they do it. One of my biggest issues with the Department of Corrections is accountability. When I lost my brother, in there, in that facility, it was due to 
Even though he was murdered, it was safety, security, failure, neglect, and accountability. And that's something I've always held down when I go after the Missouri Department of Corrections, okay? So with that being said, even, you know, she calls me frequently and she's outraged because if they don't feel like answering you, Kevin, they don't have to answer you. And the thing about it, we're going to take it back a little bit. When we talk about how the men in these stories, they don't trust the Department of Corrections and they begin to, she's talking about riots. Riots happened in Bonterre. The riots got so bad they had to bring in three different prisons. This is because of the anger. This is because they're, they're feeling like they're losing their lives and they're, they're, they're helpless and they're hopeless. So they get angry and they react in the only way that they know. Bonterre didn't just have one riot or two. They had three. Three major riots, which calls for a over 100-man transfer during the pandemic. Rioting. When we talk about rioting, it takes me back to when I was incarcerated. We used to riot, come together. It didn't matter what race, color, creed you were. When one prisoner was affected, we were all affected. We understood that there were unity in numbers, and we also understood that what affects one prisoner affects all directly or indirectly. So we would riot or we would go on hunger strikes to uh, try to get the attention of the media and those uh, people on the outside that cared. You're locked down 24 hours a day or 27 or 24 and one or 23 and one or um, you come out a few hours a day they let you, if you're on lockdown, you don't come out at all. So you don't have a voice. You don't have a way to, to reach anyone. So as Maria stated, that is the only voice. That is the only battle cry that prisoners have is to riot, hunger strike. Uh, those are really the two weapons that they have that have proven to be pretty, pretty, uh, pretty instrumental uh, in addition to, you know, trying to write letters. But, you know, once you're on that, that list, you know, your letters are, they may not go out. You know, they, they, they may put uh, your letters in your property box and you might not see them until you're released from prison, like letters that you've been waiting to come to you mysteriously appear in your property box when you're released, if you're ever released. So, you know, it's common. And unfortunately, I'm very familiar with all of these stories that we're hearing today. Uh, I live them. Uh, I witness them. Uh, I know what it feels like to be retaliated against, to be placed on that list. I know what it's like to, to have your voices suppressed and it's because of organizations like Expo, like MCU, like the Human Rights and Justice Coalition that I also work with, like Kenya Speaks, my platform, that we collectively have a voice, that we collectively are able to have our concerns heard and addressed. And for instance, addressed before 
the state capital, Jefferson City, Missouri, which we are working fervently to get that done, to expose what's going on and what can, continues to go on in the penal institutions across America and here in St. Louis, Missouri. I just wanted to kind of go back. Now, there were not only riots in Bonterre, there were also riots in Pacific. Now, what's alarming to me about the, where those two riots kicked off at? Well, actually, there were more than two because these places have had multiple riots in each facility, Bonterre and Pacific. But those are also the two main prisons with the highest number of positive COVID testing. So that right there kind of goes back to how these people mentalities or trained is that the only way they can get results from the prisons is to break out in riots to make them answer and pay attention to them while their comrades are laying on the floor, barely can breathe, coughing all over the place with no medical attention. So they go into these riots. And they were major riots on both ends, not one, not two, but maybe three or more on both, at both of those facilities. Okay, and we'll bring things back around to, to Bonterre, and that's where we started. So we'll finish things off with a testimony from and her son is at the same facility in Bonterre, and let's take a listen to her story now. Um, um, I have a son that's in the Bonterre Correctional Facility uh, on Monday, 8-17. I got a call uh, for my son saying he tested positive for COVID. Um, Within this time, leading up to this, he had been transferred to like six different units. Then he was moved to another few units. Well, the last unit he ended up in, he was put in a cell where a person was brought out that had COVID. They didn't clean the cell before they placed him in. Uh, he, you know, told me that he had to clean the cell himself along with his cell with our own soap and water, so which I purchased. Uh, not soap that the state issued. Uh, also, the person in the cell next door had tested positive, so they took him out, left his celly, who used the phone, and then returned my son used the phone behind him. Tested again, that's when he actually tested positive. It's just been an ongoing process, just trying to get in touch with anybody to find out what's going on with my child. I had to make several calls, several messages, Sometimes not hearing back, and then when I would get a call back, you know, it it would be nothing. Uh, during this time, he broke his hand. Well, he had broke his hand a while back. They bandaged the hand, put a cast on it, but they did it incorrectly. So the hand re-broke. Now, during this time that he's dealing with the COVID and the unhealthy issues with the, you know, the units that he was in, he never got an x-ray, so he's asking for x-rays for his hand. I'm calling about x-rays, still no x-ray. As I was, you know, trying to reach out, different things were happening, like he was getting put in a hole, and um, he hadn't got his letter from uh, All Lives Matter. So I feel as though they're holding his bill. Now he's in the hole again. I feel like now they're on some kind of retaliation because they won't allow him anything. Like, he, has a, he can't get his food or anything. 
I've already been able to speak to two people in the process of this happening. As of last week, I did get a call from medical. They really didn't know much. They just knew that he had tested positive uh, for the COVID, and that's probably why he hadn't got attention for his hand. It's just so much. It's like ongoing. I don't know. I just know that something needs to be done about the DLC because our family members are suffering, especially those that um, have tested positive for COVID, as if they brought the the disease into the um, they brought the virus into the jail themselves when they haven't been out. On top of that, they're saying that he's possibly going to be transferred. And my concern is, how do you transfer uh, COVID positive inmate to another facility? without cross-contaminating the virus. He goes up for parole um, 2023. I feel as though for the um, punishment that they gave him, it was a lot. The jails are crowded. They can't run the system. They're not doing a good job. Let him go. I mean, you violated him in every way. Let him go. The whole plan of the Department of Justice needs to be revised. People are losing their lives in the Department of Justice. The state is responsible for our children, our loved ones, our family members, and they're failing not only them, but they're failing us. They're failing the taxpayers. It's not part of us. I refuse to, I refuse, I refuse to allow the Department of Correction to kill my child. Um, again, echoing uh, what we've heard before in that, especially in this facility, procedures are not taking place. In fact, uh, her son had to clean his own cell um, after some the previous uh, tenant of that cell had tested positive for COVID. Um, and then also he ends up in solitary and it's now looking like he'll be transferred. And so we're talking about cross-contamination between facilities. There are, there are, there are many issues. Um, again, that's another person that tested positive maybe a week after I started reaching out to them about the conditions and how they were treating him. He must, now he tested positive twice, but mysteriously after that, he tested negative, they released him. Now he's also an ASIC. So now we have two different prisons, Pacific and Bonterrigan on the radar. Both of my clients are in ASIC. Did they do what they said they did? I don't know, I just find it mysterious. Neither one of them have gotten their consent forms, which is tampering with mail, which is a federal offense. Both of them are in ADSEG. Both of them have medical issues. One has received a fractured jaw now. Um, so I find that really, really alarming with what's going on in MDLC. Now, what I also, like these are firsthand stories, the cross-contamination. We can always be stated we'll go deeper with these things at different levels. But the cross-contamination, that is hard, that, that is a direct form of failure to me. When you speak with anyone at the Department of Corrections, they will let you know they don't even have a proper protocol. With their proper protocol, they're failing men and women all inside those Department of Corrections. And the reason that they're failing them is because without their proper protocol, you're just doing whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, and feeling like you want to feel. So therefore, these people are suffering. They're catching COVID. You don't even have a protocol um, Pacific had 65 men in an open bay area. That's just like you opening your living room up and you land 65 people out there with COVID, coughing and breathing all over each other. 
that's no protocol. They're still transferring people. What she's saying is he had been transferred to six different housing units before he got COVID. Now they're saying that by transferring him out the facility, this is just downright failure and neglect to me. And it's horrible. And no one's making them be accountable. And that's the real sad part about it. Just an example, eye contact, eye contact the wardens in the director's office. Constituent Services responded back to me, Melissa Massman, because I don't mind calling their names out. She responded back to me saying, oh, I, I recommend that you go to our website and read our handbook. And at that point, it kind of got me a little snappy. I says, Melissa Massman, thanks for introducing yourself, but I recommend that you go inside those prisons and see what these people are saying is true or not. She never responded back to me. Two weeks later, I said, hi, Melissa, I'm following up with you. No response. But they just told St. Louis Public Radio, they have no communication from me. I directly reached out to Bonterre and Pacific on those two conditions, and you would get to St. Louis Public Radio and tell them that you have no calls or emails from you when your spokesperson sent her colleague to respond to me because Karen Potchman knows she wants no more dealings with me because they can't just tell me anything. So that gets me really upset, Kevin. It's, it's unfortunate when you have, again, uh, someone advocating on the rights of prisoners and not only do they retaliate against prisoners, but they also in turn retaliate against those that are advocating for those prisoners, including censoring their mail, not allowing the prisoners to receive their mail. For instance, there was uh, consent forms that Maria has sent out specifically to specific uh, prisoners to give consent so that they can have their, uh, their voices heard uh, on a national platform. And coincidentally, they never received, some of those prisoners never received those specific consent forms to have their stories aired on national public radio. Uh, airwaves. And so we see that this is and has been a continuous issue throughout the Department of Corrections um, globally in all 50 states. And, you know, we, we have to continue putting pressure on them, asking for accountability, transparency, because we know that it's a rack. The prison system is a rack, period. All they do is racketeering. Okay, um, that that's all they do. I mean, anytime you're paying a prisoner fifteen dollars a month to work in the commissary or to work as a as a as a uh, as a night porter or a porter, you know, it's a rat. You know, so so it's unfortunate what's going on, what continues to happen behind prison uh, walls that the general society is not made aware of, and we're hoping to accomplish. Um, the awareness through our platforms and by getting this information out to the public. And so, you know, I'm thankful and grateful for organizations such as yours, such as uh, your radio uh, connections, such as Our Lives Matter, and uh, being able to work with MCU as well as Expo and the Human Rights and Justice uh, coalition. So I'm just uh, happy to be able to get this information out and it, it provides another opportunity for me to continue advocating for our brothers and sisters that are incarcerated, which is a, a passion that I have always had um, since I fell victim uh, at the age of 14. 
Kaya, you are absolutely right. When I first started advocating, I think this is how MDOC gets to know a little bit about me because I would not give up. They were dehumanizing two of my people. One of them you heard today. And it's how I first started advocating. When I started making complaints, they literally, one visit, because I had to start going down there to see what was going on inside of those walls. They literally had me go get clothes. I had to stand in front of that camera because I, I knew I was going to write a report on this. Like, look what I have on. Three times, to, and I had to go to the store, buy different things. Come on, I'm coming in here as an advocate. I'm not coming in here with indecent exposure or any of that. So that was one incident. Another incident, they make me wait two hours for a visit. So that means I'm only getting a one-hour visit with the time lapse. And I'm going to say this. I'm going down one side of the highway. This is when I made it stop, though. I Because I kept complaining, kept sending my complaints. They sent the highway trooper. I'm coming down one way. They turned around. They did a U-turn on the highway. He followed me for about five or ten miles. Finally, he pulled me over saying about my sticker or something. You could not see my sticker from the other side of the road. What made you turn around and pull me over? And what we come to the assumption, one of his relatives worked in that prison. So this was to intimidate me to stop me from coming to the prisons. They will not only target your people in there, you're absolutely right, Kenya, they will target and attack act advocates. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I know personal advocates that were advocating for me and they shut her down and her entire organization down. And uh, I mean, they play so many games. Like they violate your human rights on multiple levels. Will harass your visitors, will do all types of things to your visitors as well. And I'm glad that we're able to continue fighting and advocating for our prisoners' rights because that's something that we have to continue to do because so many of our youth are being locked up. So many of our men and women are being locked up on a regular basis. That is just appalling. The numbers are, are constantly increasing. They're growing every single day in spite of this so-called pandemic. So that's another topic of conversation. And all of these are the, the starting points of getting organized. And it sounds like that that's going to be a pressure that, that may finally um, get a little bit of attention. So what are some next actions that, that you guys are talking about as far as being organized and starting to put pressure on the system? We want to keep this in front of the media's attention. We have a call of action that will be coming up either the first or the second week in October. We just sent out, I sent out a survey last night to the uh, my expo team to see what day is good for them. Either the first week we set out a couple of days. So we want to go up to Jeff City. We want to not so much as call them out. Let them know we are here to stay and we're not going anywhere. We need these issues addressed. That is one thing we're going to do and just keep... This this goes deeper, Kevin. This goes deeper. This is one of the reasons that I wanted to circle with this pandemic. This goes deeper. Um, like I said, I lost my brother in 2014. That was six years ago. Medical hasn't changed. The, the safety hasn't changed. The security hasn't changed. The accountability hasn't changed. It's only gotten worse. It is time 
implore the Missouri Department of Corrections to be reformed. It's time for our Missouri judicial system to be reformed. Like Kenya said, we got a lot of innocent people behind those bars that are being mistreated. So it all works hand in hand, but it is definitely time for reform. And how can listeners add their voices uh, to, to what's going on? They can either reach out I can um, attach some information. I can be, you can, I have a um, social media page. I'm on Facebook, My Way Out. You can also find me at Justice for Larry Miller, Inmate Lives Matter. That's my campaign. That's how I got, even though Our Lives Matter is, you know, deal with gun violence, I branched over into the Department of Corrections. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a campaign, Justice for Larry Miller, Inmates Lives Matter. You can find me on there. You can also email me at My Way Out. 2018 at gmail.com or you can contact me at 314-467-8341. Again, that's 314-467-8341 to join us with this call of action to let your voice be heard because it's not about, I could fight for your loved ones. It's about me supporting you fighting for your loved ones behind those boys. That's what MCU Expo Our Lives Matter is about. We will stand with you, support you. You don't have to do it alone. But it is that's how we're going to get the results. In numbers, everyone that has a loved one in the Department of Corrections needs to stand up because they are dehumanizing souls inside those walls. Okay, thank you. And that's obviously where folks can contact if they have someone uh, that is incarcerated and they need help. You're, you're there for them also. Kenya, uh, tell us about uh, what you'd like to see next and then, then also about how folks can, can tune in and, and listen to your voice and, and, uh, and, and your podcast. Sure. So uh, first and foremost, my podcast, uh, my platform is for um, advocating on behalf of those that have been victimized. So it's a platform for everyone, right? So Kenya Speaks Show is a powerful and indispensable podcast that is essential to our ongoing cultural dialogue. I want you guys to listen in as I shine light on social, economic, and criminal brutality that plagues Blacks in America. Kenya Speaks Show is a full discussion that examines the origins, applications, solutions to these problems. I want you guys to tune in every week to hear these nuggets of wisdom on how to cope and fight back. And those that are interested in contacting me or following me on social media, King Yah, that's K-I-N-G-Y-A, all one word, King Yah Speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S. And uh, you can email me at kingyahspeaks at gmail.com, kingyahspeaks at gmail.com. Hit me up on IG, Twitter. I'm on both as King Yah Speaks. And you can find me wherever you stream your favorite podcast, um, iHeartRadio, Apple, Spotify, uh, TuneIn. Uh, we're on all of those platforms. So wherever you stream your favorite podcast, I, uh, I appreciate listener support. And if you have stories that you like for us to air or you'd like to be interviewed, please, by all means, send us an email, gmail.com. Thank you. So I want to thank the two of you for joining us. I'll give a brief shout out for Elise Max, who had to leave us. Um, she had another appointment, but she again is with the Missourians for alternatives to the death penalty. And she can be reached at Elise, that's E-L-Y-S-E at 
madpmo.org. So once again, I want to thank all three of our guests today, Maria Miller, the founder of Our Lives Matter and leader, a leader with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing, and Kingya, the host of Kingya Speaks. He's also an organizer with Expo and a human rights activist and a motivational speaker. And Elise Max, again, the state director for Missourians for alternatives to the death penalty. To learn more about MCU, go to Metropolitan Congregations United's website at mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events, and to find out how you can participate with us. Again, I am Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. Music